Last hour, we ended by looking at day four. So we'll continue in our biblical foundations, looking at our creation event, Genesis 1 and 2, and we're viewing it as historical. These things are what God reveals to us, what he did in six days. So we'll continue looking at Genesis 1 and get into a little bit of Genesis chapter 2. And as I mentioned in the break, we are going slower in this portion because there's so much there. And this really lays the foundation for virtually everything else. And we'll just build on that foundation and we can move more rapidly in some of the other historical events. We won't finish creation today. We'll spend a good portion next week as well. Those that accommodate, that I've been referring to, those that believe in, let's say, progressive creationism and all the forms of theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is that viewpoint that only Christians hold. None of the evolutionists hold to it. It's those Christians that see the Bible as speaking of God as creator, but are intimidated by science and think that science has proven that God created by evolution. Their viewpoint, trying to put the two together, is called theistic evolution. That God created using evolution. Those that do that, I call them accommodation, or their approach is accommodation. The writers, and I'm going to give you an example of one, they emphasize that the evidence that supports theistic evolution. And I read a specific book written by a progressive creationist, probably the most popular one today, and he's very well known, Hugh Ross, probably heard of him. In in his book, he's writing a commentary on Genesis 1, and this is what he does. But he's typical of others as well. They superimpose current theories, current scientific theories, on Genesis 1. That's a mistake. The better approach is to take it the way we did, as a 10-year-old would read it, and explain it, very simply. Thirdly, they reinterpret the text, and this is where they go wrong. Because they're assuming that current theories are better than what God has revealed. Fourthly, they ignore the non-supporting details. They ignore the non-supporting details. So if you read a progressive creationist or a theistic evolutionist, look for all four of these elements. What we do is we let the text speak for itself, and then, as I've already done here, fit scientific ideas into what the Bible teaches. Did you see me do this here? In other words, we have oceans, then continents, fruit-bearing plants, then animals. We haven't got to the animals yet, but bees come in later. So this is how you work science in there. And the more that science discovers, the more it conforms to what the Bible has taught ahead of time. Okay. Let me give you an example. Hugh Ross has a huge problem with the sun and the moon created on day four. So this is how he reinterprets the text. And this is a statement right out of his book. And his book is a commentary on Genesis 1. He says, on creation day four, the sun and the moon and the stars become distinctly visible from Earth's surface for the first time. Yes. They're created on day one, is his viewpoint. So how do you interpret Genesis 1? Well, they're on day four because now you can see them if you were on planet Earth. That's what he's saying. Distinctly visible from Earth's surface for the first time. And verse 16 is just a parenthetical note. And what verse 16 is, and God made the two lights. This is parenthetical. It's kind of backtracking or referring back to what he did on day one. It's just parenthetical. Verse 17 echoes the wording of day one. I don't have his quote there, but that's the essence of what he's saying. But he ignores a lot of exegetical details that don't fit what he is saying. First of all, 
We have a divine fiat, just like all of the other divine fiats in relationship to the heavenly bodies. In other words, we have the same kind of wording referring to a creation. So just as he created certain things on day one, certain things on day two, we have the same language to describe what he's creating on day four. Secondly, we have the immediacy of fulfillment, verse 15, just like we do on the others. And it says, and it was so. So God speaks it and it comes about. It's so. And it's done by his word. We also have creation terms in verse 16. Uh, verse 16, and God made. That's a different creation term. There's bara, which is a Hebrew word. Verse 1, Bereshit, bara Elohim, in the beginning, created God. Literal wording, but God is the subject, so in the beginning, God created bara. There's another Hebrew word, asa, I'll show it to you in a moment, which is parallel with uh, bara, and in verse 16, he says he made, so he's distinctly creating on day four. This is the point I'm making. Here's the word. Here's asa. You knew that. Verse 16. But here's an interesting thing. In verse 9, we have ra'a. Ra'a. Why is this interesting? Well, let me explain it. Q-ras, remember that little statement I gave you? Now you can see it. In other words, the heavenly bodies, now you can, they appear now on day four. But if Moses had intended for them to appear on day four, he could have used ra'ah because he already used it in verse nine. Because in verse nine, he says, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land, what? Ra'ah. Very good. Let the dry land appear. So he used the word appear in verse nine. But he uses asa in verse 16, not ra'ah. And that's a detail that Hugh Ross ignores. And then again, to reemphasize it, they're placed on day four in verse 17. We have the placement of the heavenly bodies. And that's a detail he also ignores. Okay, so here's side by side the six days of creation. And here's the sequence that you can find in any book of science that gives you an evolutionary time frame. No Big Bang. Before we're over, I'm going to show you that this, this ends up as a spaghetti bowl. There's just no consistency whatsoever. So we have a universe. We have light, then the universe. We have light, and then, which is out of order in terms of the evolutionary time frame. Water separated. We have them. We don't have oceans until way later after Earth is created. Earth after planets, after galaxies, after stars. I'm basically showing you these things are out of order. Vegetation, first cell. Ocean life, first cell. It's on Earth. Sun and the moon. This is the biggest contradiction here. It's supposed to be up here. Very early. Day four. Okay, day four. Light before stars. Earth before stars and galaxies. Heavenly bodies on day four. Origin of astronomy, which focuses more on the heavenly bodies. We saw the origin of astrophysics, which studies the whole universe. Now we have origin of astronomy. So day five, we have flying and water creatures, flying creatures and water creatures created. So let's take a look at day five. I won't spend too much time on it. Verse 20, then God said, there's the revelation and the articulation, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open, what? The open, what's the Hebrew word there? Rakia. In the open rakia of the heavens. That's the atmosphere there. So the heavens in that context is used to refer to the atmosphere. So there's an expanse there. There's a, there's a rakia spreading out called the atmosphere. That's what we call it. So there's flying creatures and swarming water creatures. 
And it tells us in verse 21, and God created, there's bara. Second time bara occurs, first time was verse 1, second time here in verse 21, and God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, after its kind. In the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word min. Very easy, very simple word, min. Kind. There's not species in Genesis 1. They're broader categories than species. They're called min or kinds. So it could include broader categories. I think we divide up, for example, the dog kind into smaller categories, into species of dog. But there's a broader category called kinds. That's how it's translated. The Hebrew word is men. The word occurs in the Bible 33 times, and 10 of those occur in Genesis 1. And a lot of them also occur when we get to the Genesis flood, because God took on animals according to their kinds. Now, the word men, that's a scientific word. That's a classification. That's a biological category that we are verifying today in current biology, or has been verified. What does the word mean? Well, what it means that it's telling us that there are limitations of what we describe as variation within kinds. Kinds can vary. God built within the DNA of these creatures, these kinds, the ability to change or vary. Use the word variation. Don't use the word microevolution. When the evolutionist uses the word microevolution, he's talking about variation, but what he's doing is he's setting you up. Because what he does is he jumps from microevolution that we would not deny, but the reason I don't want to use that word, because then he makes a jump from microevolution to macroevolution. In other words, there is change within the kinds, but that change has limitations, and, and it does not go from one kind to another kind. Mars. Small changes. Small changes. You know, like the lines with the strong characteristics typically survive. Yeah. Or what Darwin observed when he saw the beaks, the different beaks, he called that evolution, and all it was is variation. Animals that adapt to their their climate and environment. Yes. Variation within the kind. Within the kind, that's limitation. And we know today, biologically, uh, creatures do not cross outside of that. There's never been an observed example of evolution outside or from one kind to another kind. All right? You know the classifications of species? Do I know the classification? Like, like uh, life, life domain kingdom phylum class order family This is probably family, men. Family? Probably. Somewhere in there. All right? How is that spelled in English? M-I-N. Again, Paul recognizes in the New Testament, he understood Genesis. First uh, Corinthians 15.39, Paul says, All flesh is not the same flesh. There's boundaries. It's not all the same. There's not a continuity, is what he's saying. But there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts. There's a distinction in the creation. There's not a continuity. And then he goes on, and another flesh of birds. Birds have a distinct characteristics from beasts, and another of fish. Fish are different. Lots of others, too. <laughs> Lots of other examples. So the New Testament confirms what we know from the Old Testament, from Genesis 1. It's just the evolutionists that have mixed things up. Some of the words that are used in verses 20 and 21, swarming things, that, that's serets. Serets. We have, this is an important word, living soul. Uh, notice what it says in these creatures, verse 20. Let the waters teem with swarms of nephesh. 
Sat nefesh. See the little N there? Nefesh. Living creatures or living, some translates it souls. Don't mix up this word because man has nefesh. God created man with nefesh. No. They, well, not in the, I guess you would say, Greek sense. But animals do have nefesh. That's that living creatures in verse 21. So the Hebrew concept is, the idea of nefesh is probably this animated, even perhaps even emotional aspect of creatures. And man has nefesh, or man has created a nefesh, a created soul, if you will. But it's not, it's not suke like we have in the, in the New Testament. It's different. It's a different kind of soul for the creatures. There's other aspects. We'll talk about what man is made of. Then we have oaf, flying creatures or flying things. And he calls attention, for some reason, these sea monsters. This is dinosaurs. He probably, your 10-year-old is very curious about dinosaurs. And if he asks you a question, where's dinosaurs? Verse 21. You could even translate it, uh, sea dinosaurs. That's taninanim, plural. Im. Remember the im? Sea monsters. Well, we have some contradictions here with evolution. We have aquatic and flying creatures at the same time. They're not supposed to be created at the same time or evolved at the same time. Aquatic creatures, flying creatures. Birds before reptiles. That's out of the order of the evolutionary scheme. Focus on dinosaurs. They're not called dinosaurs. The word dinosaur didn't come about. The reason the translators don't use the word dinosaur, the word dinosaur didn't come about until early 1900s when they discovered dinosaur bones and they gave them the name dinosaurs. So the word dinosaur did not exist in the time that the King James, in fact, the King James Version is just really battling to try to find a good word that describes that. In Job 40, I think, Behemoth is a word that is used. In other contexts, they use, can't remember what are some of the other translations. But keep in mind, the word dinosaur didn't exist. So the translations, and many of the modern translations have followed a little bit of the pattern of the King James. Because many of them, or none of them use the word dinosaur. But you can find dinosaurs in the Bible without that name. Clearest description is probably Job 40. No evolution here in spite of what uh, the evolutionist gives as the Mexican walking fish. It doesn't really walk. A little photograph there. First life is on earth, contradicts evolution. We already said that. We have the immediacy of fulfillment, I told you, and called attention to that. No long ages here. Fixed nature of kinds, or you can't go beyond certain boundaries. You have variation, but only on a limited basis. We have very, very complex forms created. No evolutionary from simple life forms. Later on, I'm going to show that there's no such thing as simple life form. It doesn't exist. Number five, the sequence events. That's that chart I gave you. They're totally out of order. There you go. Let's expand it. So we have fruit trees. They're supposed to be very, very late in the evolutionary scheme. After animals, well, we have it before animals. Day three instead of day five. Aquatic life, again, out of sequence. Flying creatures, they're late. Birds are late because you have to fly. The ability to fly would be very late in the evolutionary scheme. Sea monsters or dinosaurs. Domestic animals, we'll see that on day six later on. Creeping things, creeping animals, also Wild animals. See a bowl of spaghetti there. Nothing matches. Totally out of sequence. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon. There are four different kinds of flying creatures. So if you believe in evolution, you have to believe that four different kinds of creatures had to evolve, which it's hard to even imagine one creature evolving to be able to have the ability to fly. Evolution requires four different creatures. Do you know what those four different creatures are? One of them, obviously, are birds that we have mentioned already that we looked at. Okay, mammals can fly, and Linda says bats. Bats are a mammal, so that's a totally different 
source of a flying creature. So you have to have birds evolved to be able to fly, and you have to have mammals evolved to be able to fly. What else? Insects, very good. You have birds, you have mammals, and what else? What? No. <laughs> one that uh, one that has gone extinct. A flying creature that's gone extinct. Reptiles, very good. Reptiles. Pterosaurus, flying creature, and then we have insects. So evolution has to see four paths of evolutionary flying creatures. Even one is impossible on the basis of evolution. And at the end of chapter one, we have the completion. So no evolution. You don't see it anywhere. We've been stressing that. Today, one of the sciences, and there's a few sciences that are totally destroying the theory of evolution, one of them is microbiology. And I'm talking about unbelieving microbiologists are abandoning the theory of evolution. Not publicly so much, but they see the, the truth of the matter on the microbiological level. There's just really no evidence for evolution. In fact, the contrary, the very opposite. Here is an unbeliever that is honest, and he wrote a whole book. He calls his book Evolution in Crisis. He's a microbiologist. And the conclusion, the last chapter of his book, he makes this quote. He calls it a myth. Evolution is a myth. And he says, quote, Ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. It's not true. Yet, according to the public schools, it is what? Fact, rather than theory. According to the college campus, it is fact. They're lying to you. People lie. People lie. That's how it can be, to be blunt. We have a president that does this commonly. So, ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. Michael Denton. He's not a believer. He's a just an honest scientist that is laying down laying down the evidence. Just a cartoon here, just to kind of lighten things up. Actually, the way the world's falling apart, it probably was made in only six days. <laughs> uh, creation science tossed out of schools. <laughs> Day five. Distinction of plant and animal life. Distinctions. No continuity, according to evolution, there has to be a continuity because all life is related. Aquatic and flying creatures at the same time, we already mentioned that, but I've got it on a summary here. Number three, birds before reptiles, that's out of the sequence. Number four, dinosaurs are in focus. And dinosaurs on day five, not too far away from man, dinosaurs and men lived together. Evolution says no, 65 million years apart, I believe. Number five, the fixity of kinds, not only related to plant life, but here re-emphasized again, men in relationship to animals. We had men in relationship to plants, and now in relationship to animals. So we could say the origin of zoology. So we have a biblical foundation for zoology. Zoology did not exist on day four. There was no such thing on day four. Day six, land animals and man. Let's take a look at, and I'm skipping over here, in verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things. We have a whole set of new categories of animals. A lot of things we said about day four, we could repeat. We, we again notice the after their kinds. We have fixity of kinds again, verse 24. We have the immediacy of fulfillment, and it was so. This is repeated over, so we get the point. Are you getting the point? And God made the beasts of the earth. He made them. There's asa, that Hebrew word again, synonymous with bara. After their kind, there's men again, and the cattle, after their kind, men. Everything that creeps on the ground, after its kind, there's men again, and God saw that it was good. 
divine evaluation again. And then verse 26, very important. Everything is moving to verse 26. Everything is in preparation for the crown of God's creation. Not only is earth the priority, but mankind is the crown of God's ultimate creation. So the language is very different. Then God said, we have the revelation again, but instead of let there be man, we don't have that. Instead, we have this inter-Trinitarian communication that I introduced last time. Let us make, I saw, man in our image. No creatures made in the image of God except man. According to our likeness, notice the us and our two times. You notice that? Plurality again. Now again, what I said last time, Genesis 1 doesn't give us a trinity, a full-blown trinity, but it leaves room for Trinitarian idea here that is developed as we get further into Scripture. Now, I won't get into the ways that can be translated and the typical Jewish translation of it. Basically, the plural of majesty is the Jewish viewpoint, and there's a few other viewpoints as well. Angels may be in view. But I think the best view is there's communication within the Trinity himself. Because man is not created after the image of angels. So that's the argument against that one. So, after the image of God, which is very, very important, and according to his likeness, humanness. When we speak of mankind, there are some aspects of man that we share with the animal creation. But what's most important, not what we share, but what we have that makes us distinct. And those are emphasized in the text. Bashar, we have a material aspect. We have a body. We have a material body. That's what animals have. Flesh, New Testament word. Bashar, Old Testament word. Nefesh, I've already mentioned. Nefesh is characteristic that we share with the animals. This is the animated life aspect of mankind. Animals share something of that. Be able to respond to an environment, be able to to some measure think, that's nefesh. Nefesh, there's kind of your transliteration there. All these creatures that I photographed there have nefesh. The evolutionist says you're related to them because you have nefesh. No, we're, we're created distinct. We share this only because God created us. The word nephesh occurs 730 times in the Old Testament, and it's the most important aspect of a creature's being, at least non-human. And it has the idea of a living being, that living, that animated, that non-material aspect that you can observe. You could even view it as soul, but not in the New Testament sense of soul. Sometimes it's translated soul. So does the snail have nephesh? Yes, the snail has nephesh. So does that fly that bugs you has nephesh. But what makes animals distinct from plants is animals have nephesh. When the Bible speaks of killing or dying in terms of animals... It's probably the extinguishing of nephesh that might be in view. Because plant life is never in, at least Genesis, spoken of as death. When you kill a plant, it's different. There's a distinction between plants and animals in the Bible. So when Christ is coming into Jerusalem, he says um, that the rocks wouldn't praise him if that's not nephesh. No, 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 no. The rocks don't have nephesh. No. No. What what he I think what he's doing is he's using a figure of speech that we call uh, what is that word? It's not anthropomorphism, but there's a similar where you attribute life to non-living personification. That's it. Personification. Mark's right. I think it's just And it, there could be the figure of speech hyperbole as well. Maybe a combination of the two. 
But this is what distinguishes plants from animals, is animals have nephesh and, and plants do not. There's, there's somewhere in the New Testament, who was Paul or Jesus, said that you can distinguish between the sacrifice of an animal and human death. And he said that when, when, the, light, when the blood leaves the animal, the life leaves the animal. Life is the blood. And there was a comparison. Or life is in the blood. Life is in the blood, right. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that's the distinction here of soul or living being. Yeah. The point being, don't confuse it with this This idea of soul is a little bit different in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. How else would happen? Because something. Well, they have nephesh. But sometimes, the reason I put soul there is because sometimes it's translated soul. But I'm, I'm warning you, and I'm drawing attention to it because some translations translate it soul. But it's not soul in the sense that yeah, we think. So, the shared aspects is the material body aspect, basar, and the animated substance or immaterial part called nefesh. But what's most important are the distinct aspects, the things that make us different. And in Genesis 2, nishmat is this spiritual aspect that we have in chapter 2 where God breathes the breath of life into man, chapter 2. That makes us distinct. The spiritual aspect. Animals don't have a spiritual nature. At every point, we will go against the uh, secular humanist. So, man and nature, there's some continuous aspects, and there's also some discontinuous. The continuous is we share the sixth day of creation with other animals, We're created from the material realm, from dust. That's in chapter 2. So we're made of molecules and atoms. We feed, much like animals feed. In fact, your children sometimes resemble animals more than... (laughs) Not yours, of course. (laughs) We reproduce in somewhat of a similar way as to the animal kingdom, the reproductive aspect. And certainly, I guess I should put this at the top, the material, the elements, the biologically, I guess you could say also, that's continuous. But there's a discontinuous aspect that makes us distinct and separate in the crown of creation. Even though we share the sixth day, it's the last of the sixth day, making man the crown of God's creation. We're going to see in a moment that God has given man a particular office or function that only belongs to man, and he is to have dominion over the animals. We'll see that in a moment. That's in chapter 1. He has the capability of naming, and to be able to name something, You have to have the intellect to be able to distinguish characteristics and to be able to come up with an appropriate descriptive name that captures the essence of a creature or objects. Naming also connotes sovereignty over something. And this is made explicit in Genesis 1. The naming is in Genesis 2. In fact, Genesis 2 is the, and the naming is the outworking of what we have in Genesis 1 in terms of sovereignty. And the giving of the name is not a label. In our culture, families or parents pick out a, a name. Oh, that's pretty. You know, that sounds good. I like that. But it's more of a label. In Hebrew thought, a name captures the essence of something. And it represents the whole person. So when Adam named the animals, he could see the totality of that animal, and the name captured the essence of it. And he was able to distinguish its characteristics. And we have a relationship with the Creator, and also with one another that is distinct. And the bottom line is we are in the image of God, created in the image of God. So let's expand that, because that's the most important aspect. What is the image of God? And all of these are distinct from the rest of the creation. Starting with spirituality. We have spirit, spirituality. Animals do not. All they have is nefesh. 
We have immortality. And I don't put eternality. Only God is eternal. But we do have immortality. We will live beyond this material, physical realm. And that includes the unbeliever. The unbeliever has immortality. He will exist in the lake of fire, but he will continue to live. If you can call it living. Maybe he continues to die. I guess it would be a better description. The image of God includes immortality. It also includes intellect. The ability to reason. The ability to conceptualize. The ability to do what God did in putting things into categories. He's given us the ability to categorize. Putting things into categories and describing those categories and relationships of categories. And very important, we have volition. We have choices. Creatures simply respond to their environment. It's not so much volition. Whereas we make choices, which goes into, because of spirituality, we go into moral choices, not just physical material choices. What do I want to eat today? Not just those choices, but how can I relate to my creator choices? Volition. That's unique. This is part of the image of God. God has volition. God makes choices. God chooses certain things and exercises volition. God is spirit. God is more than immortal. He is eternal. And only God is eternal because he existed before the creation. We had a beginning. And certainly God has intellect, but his intellect is infinite. We call that omniscient. So all of these are reflections of who God is, the image of God. He's also built within man creativity, the the ability not to create from nothing as he does, but to be able to take what he has created and form and make things. This is technology. No, you have creativity too. Don't exclude yourself. Just look at how creative you are in evil. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Creativity. We all have that, some in some more evident ways than others, but we all have creativity. That's part of the image of God, and obviously that reflects what God does in six days. And the ability to communicate, this is language, this is communication. Forming ideas and being able to to pass your ideas on to someone else, that's communication. So what, so you would consider... Like those parties, communication. Curious. I mean, it it would appear that they communicate with each other. It's not language. Yeah. This is a very high, more sophisticated, very high level communication. Animals more of a survival thing. Yeah, and it's a more a response to an environment type of communication. Whereas we can formulate abstract ideas. We can formulate thoughts, and then communicate those thoughts that cannot be seen to other creatures. Without intellect, good point. Without high intellect, yeah. Very good. Uh, Those are the most important aspects of the image of God. All of this is basically denied by the secularist again, because there is no God. So how can you be in the image of God if there's no God? Now, the image in terms of perfections, of, so we're going to kind of compare perfections and what we have. In terms of God, his intellect is perfect. Perfection is infinite. We call that omniscience. Our intellect is finite, and our reasoning ability is finite. God has omnipotence. But he has given us abilities to deal with the environment, but they are limited. God's power is unlimited. And we can exercise volition to accomplish some of those manipulations of the environment. God is holy. He's given us a moral capacity. God is holy in that he has no evil whatsoever. And in our moral capacity, we have chosen evil. We've chosen to reject God. God is eternal, and I've already mentioned that's different. This eternal is infinite. And we are immortal, part of the image. God is love, and he's given us the ability to form relationships 
God is sovereign, and he's given us the primary responsibility of ruling the earth, and again, we have choices or volition. And there's others, but these are some of the main ones, the most obvious ones. So when we look at mankind, we have a physical aspect, we have an immaterial aspect, a nefesh, and a spiritual aspect. We also have a volitional or a will to be able to make choices. We have that rational aspect. We have that moral aspect where we can make moral choices, exercise volition in the moral realm. That's very, very different from animals. No accountability for animals because they do not respond in a moral way. And the bottom line is we have a spiritual nature. And we also have a responsibility. I call that a regal responsibility. We are rulers. We are sovereigns. And the image of God, by the way, includes women. Women have a regal responsibility as well. So everything that we have about mankind, everything that we said about the image of God, because he created man, male, and female. And there's no minimizing of either one. We've looked at the nature of God, some of the implications in the nature of God, the origin of language, those implications. We've seen the nature of man. Just went over the nature of man. So let's put kind of a foundation to anthropology together. Let's put this together. Anthropology. And by the way, if you want to write a paper on any of these that I've already kind of given you kind of the essence of it, you can write a paper and expand upon these ideas. And maybe you might even observe some other things and and then go further beyond what we have in terms of a foundation. First of all, man is created, not evolved. No evolution. Created by God, right off the bat, day six. Secondly, distinct from nature. There's not a continuity of being in terms of man and nature. God is distinct from the entire creation, so there's no continuity of being between God and nature or creation. So also there is a discontinuity between man and nature as well. We are, even though we share some aspects, there are distinctions as well. And very importantly, man is created in the image of God. We're not just material, as secular humanism would tell you. We'll add to this when we get to chapter 3, because there's another important aspect that enters into the picture of who we are. But from Genesis 1, we have at least these three. We're created by God. We're distinct from nature or the creation. And we are created in the image of God. And this is huge. This is huge. Because that's the basis of a lot of things in culture. We'll see this later on. This will pop up over and over. Let's look at chapter 1. And notice... Let's read from 20, well, the end of 24 into 28. Then God said, actually, let's skip to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is made sovereign over the rest of the creation. So a part of the image of God is that God has given man delegated responsibility, delegated sovereignty. So we reflect the sovereignty of God because we are made in the image of God. So right off the bat, he speaks of our function and our role. And it's good that we understand This is why we are here. This is applicable to everybody. This is part of our ministry in terms of God deals with this aspect. When you think of ministry, the Bible, we as humans in our fallenness have set up this category of ministry that it's only those people that we pay on Sunday mornings to do ministry. 
This passage says we will be responsible before God to accomplish what he designed us to accomplish. And this is the passage that gives us the essence of that. As individuals, we need to find out how do I accomplish it with the gifts and abilities that he's given me, but I am called to be involved in what God is doing in the world, and this is part of it. So this is huge. So let's read on here. So verse 27, and God created man in his image. So we have kind of the fulfillment or the accomplishment there. See that that part of the pattern? Created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. And he created him male and female. The image of God is incomplete simply with man or incomplete with simply woman. It's the male and female aspect that completes the image of God. The Bible elevates women. Most religions don't do that. So, male and female, he created them. And then, very importantly, we have a reiteration of the task, and we have what I would describe as a creation mandate. Some call it a dominion mandate. So, if you hear that phrase, it's the same thing. Creation mandate is the way I prefer because it's in the creation. Verse 28, God blessed them. There's the blessing aspect. And God said to them. This is the very first time that we have God speaking to man. Very first time. Very important. Hmm? Um, Meryl was saying uh, that it might be hearing vocal voice sound. It may be audible, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God, the God that creates vocal cords should certainly be able to reproduce the sounds of a vocal cord without Does vocal cords. Like Probably, yeah. Linda, <laughs> <laughs> let it go. Yep. Okay, verse 28. <laughs> ah, I'm glad you're having fun in this class. <laughs> and God said to them, We have two major aspects, and this is the most important things that God has given us in terms of what we are all about. The first one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruitfulness, reproduction, basically having babies. Having babies. This is the main calling of most people. Now, there are exceptions, and Paul makes some of the exceptions in the New Testament. But in general, this is what we are called to do, is to not only marry, but also to have children. The Bible starts with sex. Sorry to say it, but how do you have babies? And what else do we have there? And it says, fill the earth and subdue it. There's a second aspect. And rule over the fish of the sea. Two very strong words. And over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion, basically. That's why it's called the dominion mandate. There's some important terms that I want to call attention to here. The Hebrew word, kabash, is the word that's translated subdue. Now, if you do a word study on that, in other words, look up all of the usages in the, in the Old Testament of kabash. It's used in context. This is a very strong and very definite Hebrew word. It has the idea of putting something into subjection. Now, in this context, it doesn't have any of the negative aspects because this is a very good creation. But after the fall... For example, a king will conquer another kingdom or a city, and he will put it in subjection, and this will be a very physical and sometimes even a cruel thing. That's how that word is used elsewhere in Scripture. Now, in this context, before sin, it doesn't have those negative aspects, but the point that I'm making here, this is a very strong word. And what it means is a very direct involvement with the creation. Man is to manipulate it. He is to subdue it. Elsewhere, it's used in the sense of bringing into bondage. And I would say that bring it in this context here, it has this idea of harnessing. Harnessing the resources of the creation. This is our task. 
So this involves a very broad area. We'll expand that. And after the fall, it becomes a more difficult thing to do. Before the fall, at this point, it would be probably a far easier, well, definitely a far easier task to be able to subdue or to harness the earth. To be able to go into the earth and be able to harness all of the resources of the earth. This not only includes the biological aspects of plants and animals, but uh, it would include all of the aspects of God placed in the earth, all kinds of other resources to be able to manufacture things. That's our task. So if you're an engineer, your task is to bring designs that basically harness using what God has given you in the ability. That's after the fall. But we have fallen, and now we're going to deal with that. We'll deal with that when we get to the fall. I'll, I'll come back to this. That's right. Right. Manage it. And you can harness it. You can harness it and manage it without destroying it. That comes as a result of the fall where man's perversion destroys things. That's after. Yeah. This is before the fall. This is before Genesis 3. We'll get to that. The other Hebrew word, rada, as you can clearly see there. Before you're done, you're going to have a Hebrew vocabulary, all of you. So rada means rule, and rada is just as strong a word as kabash. It is also a very strong word. Usages of the word. Yes. Yes. But it's a definite ruling or sovereignty or control over. Without the negative aspects, exactly. God rules, so it's not for everybody's benefit. That's right. God rules. God is sovereign. And we're to reflect his image in managing. Yeah. Okay? And it's only after the fall that man also perverts this. And it's also after the fall that the earth rebels against man as a result of the curse. We'll get into that when we talk about the fall. The point I'm making here is this ruling is also used in a very strong sense. And again, when a king would conquer, he would not only subdue, but he would have dominion. In other words, what he says goes, whether right or wrong. When the Babylonian king, an abuse was, he called upon the Daniel and his friends to worship the idol. He had dominion. He had every right to... in instill these rules, but he is accountable also in terms of morality. But outside of Genesis 1, it does have the negative aspect, but not in Genesis 1. That's my point. So, sovereign rule. Delegated sovereign rule. Two important aspects. These two aspects touch everything in life. All vocations. So, the creation mandate includes fruitfulness, And we reflect fruitfulness. Here's the creativity. Are you able to have babies? (laughs) All right, you're creative. (laughs) You reflected the image of God in creating life. And by the way, God created all things that would ultimately reflect his glory. So when you reproduce, you're reflecting the glory of God. Creating life, fruitfulness. So... At the heart and the main function of all men and women is marriage and eventually family. That's from the very beginning. And what do we do with marriage? We pervert it. And today we even have permitted marriage between like sexes and all the perversions that come with that. In terms of family. Yep. Transfer. Right. Scientifically. Yeah. So, the first part of the creation mandate deals with marriage and family. This is fundamental. And today, our culture is undermining the foundations of marriage and family. And once this crumbles, the whole society will crumble. Unless God intervenes to stop. The second is the subduing and ruling. This is exercising sovereignty. And in the process of exercising sovereignty, you have to understand the creation. That's what science is all about. So the study of science is understanding this creation 
And the better I understand it, now I can harness it. Now I can utilize it. Which leads, science leads to technology, which leads to manufacturing, which involves all of the vocations. So from God's perspective, no matter what vocation you choose, you don't have to be a Bible teacher or a pastor, you can fulfill God's will in your life regardless of the vocation that you choose. But what you need to do is submit that vocation and maybe that area of major, that's what you want to write a paper on to find out, you know, what is the biblical picture and how should I actually exercise that dominion in that particular area. Make sense? So man's purpose ultimately is to bring glory to God. That's the bottom line in whatever. And that includes the institution of the family. This is a divine institution. This is the way God has set up society. So the institution of the family is fundamental. It is at the very, very beginning of all things. It's in Genesis chapter 1, the institution of the family. The subduing includes science, technology, manufacturing, but it involves the cultivating of crops, so farmers can fulfill God's calling, housing, construction workers, teachers, education, communication fields, any aspect of materials, even travel, even space travel, computers, electronics, electricity, medical, and dot, 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 dot. You don't see taxes on there? It's right here. There's taxes. That dot right there is taxes. (laughs) Serving people by helping them, yeah, helping them be obedient to the government. Yeah, right that, that dot right there. <laughs> so, what we have here is the source of all things. God is the creator of all things. And he set up all these categories. Categories all derived from him. And he is the standard for all things. So we measure everything according to him. And we evaluate all things by his word. And that's what we're doing in this course. We're trying to evaluate all things by his word. Every area of thought. So biblical ministry is not just preaching and teaching and church work. But biblical ministry is also raising families. In fact, this is very important. Huge. Women that stay home to raise children are not put in a high place in our culture should be. This is huge. And it also includes what the husbands do and any wives that uh, endeavor to involve themselves in the culture, to vocations. You are involved in ministry. Your task, the issue is not whether you're in ministry or not. The issue is whether your ministry is in fact glorifying God. And that's the key. How do I glorify God by the things that I do? And it's all a matter of how you view your vocation. It's a matter of world view. How do you view what you do? Even mathematics. Linda's going to give us a little foundation on mathematics in a week or so. Even Martin Luther, and, and by the way, the so-called Protestant work ethic comes from Genesis 1. And when the Protestant Reformation came, People like Martin Luther went back to Scripture and began to see what Scripture taught concerning purpose of mankind and some of these passages we're going over. Luther said, vocation is nothing less than the theology of the Christian life. It provides the blueprint for how Christians are to live in the world and to influence their cultures. And that's key. How do we influence our culture? Predominantly, as we go 8 to 5. That's the biggest contact we have with the world. That's why you're taking the course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's why we're trying to reverse that. Luther goes on, It is the key to strong marriages and effective parenting. But vocations are part of... That's how you support. That's how you maintain these strong marriages and effective parenting. A writer today, Gene Baith, says, 
referring to Luther, for Luther, vocation, like justification, it's a theological word, is ultimately God's work. So what you do in your vocation, that's God's work, every much as preaching and teaching. God gives us our daily bread through the vocations of the farmer. See, there's a house of bread right there. House of baker. Yeah, there you go. So God gives us our daily bread through the vocations of the farmer, the miller, and the baker. God creates new human beings through the vocations of father and mother. God protects us through lawful magistrates. And there's tax gathering right there, that little dot there. Uh, Linda, why don't you close for us today? Do you mind? Thank you, God, we can come here and have uh, truth revealed that we may always pursue the truth of Jesus Christ and have a foundation, a little foundation place. Not believing it was supernaturalism, but believing that everything was from God. Amen.